This is the All Markets Summit podcast from Yahoo Finance. Adina, it's so great to see you. Thanks so much for coming here today. Of course, it's great to be here. So let's start off and talk a little bit about your goals at NASDAQ. What have you accomplished and what do you hope to accomplish there as the CEO? Sure. Well, I became the CEO a little under three years ago. And when one of the first things we did when I came on board as CEO is to do a strategic, strategic review of the company. Mm-hmm. And, one, and we really involved a lot of the organization behind it. What we realized is we have an incredible company with a very strong foundation. And our strengths are in technology, integrity, and global market expertise. And so what we really are focusing on is making sure we're taking that expertise and our technology capabilities and applying them to the global markets. We have 130 other markets that use our technology today. We have about 165 broker dealers who use our technology today to, to help monitor their trading activity. And so we want to make sure we become a deeper partner to our clients, make sure that we're really leveraging our technology expertise while we continue to maintain our strength as a capital market ourselves. How do you measure success? I mean, it's a competitive business. We can talk about that a little bit. But what do you look to? So we certainly look at, uh, we have several metrics of success. But obviously, how many companies are choosing to list on NASDAQ, how well are we doing in attracting order flow to the NASDAQ exchanges, both here and in Europe. Um, we also own all of the exchange, most of the exchanges in the Nordics. But then also looking at how are we deepening our relationships with our broker-dealer clients, our investment management clients, and our exchange clients. And that really comes in the form of data and technology. So are they leveraging us to manage their trading technology, their clearing technology, settlement, risk management? Are they leveraging us to make sure they're getting the best insights into the markets? And one of the areas of real focus for us in that space has been in the investment management space and helping them have better analytics, alternative data to make better investment decisions, and better competitive analysis. So those are all the areas that we're focused on right now. A lot of technology there. This is about generational change, this uh, summit, and I want to know, how does that figure into the way you do business? Are young people looking at investing in different ways, or are you looking to hire people differently? How is that coming across? Sure. I mean, I think in pretty much everything we do, I say the younger people are having a huge influence, both in terms of we have about half of our employees today are millennials or younger. So we are really proud of the fact we have a young workforce that really brings a lot of energy, new ways of thinking, and certainly new technology capabilities into the company. Uh, And so we are definitely trying to leverage that to continue to adjust how we work how we make sure that we're bringing those technologies to our clients. But then also, our clients are changing. So their expectations of the markets are changing. They're much more focused on ESG. So it's not just how well the company does financially, but how well they do in serving their communities around them and, and the environment in doing in creating those profits for their shareholders. So are they doing the right thing while they are driving to the right financial results? And that is changing investing in many ways, as we know. ESG funds have become really popular. ESG metrics are becoming ESG a big... Is- Oh, environmental, social, and governance. Right. So how the company runs itself from an environmental impact, a social responsibility, and a governance oversight. Making sure they're doing that the right way and they're bringing the right metrics into the company. Investors care. And that is all being driven by millennials and, and Gen Zers. And I think that's going to have a lasting impact on the markets and on co- the companies and how we operate. Okay. I'm going to interrupt this regular flow of questions to tell you a little known fact about Adina. She is a black belt in Taekwondo. 
Okay, so if anyone's thinking about messing with her, don't mess with her, <laughs> right? So how, is, that's the case, right? Yes, it is. And how did you get into Taekwondo? Come on. <laughs> so, well, I, I, I have kids now who are actually grown, almost growing. I mean, they're 21 and 23. When they were kids, they took Taekwondo. And I would stand there in the sidelines and watching them do their Taekwondo, and I thought, well, why am I not doing that? So they have adult classes too. So I started taking adult classes, wearing that white belt, you know, walking in. And I love it. I mean, I have to say, it's a wonderful opportunity to you know, strengthen your core, to get better balance, but also to learn a lot of skills about resilience, um, making sure that, you know, if you take a punch, I mean, if you give a punch, you have to be willing to, and able to take a punch. Um, how do you make sure that you are um, improving for yourself and not just for someone else? And all of those kind of other elements of the Taekwondo experience have actually been, I'd say, just as powerful as the physical ones. You never had to like actually use it to defend yourself? No, but you know, sometimes you can kind of visualize what would you do if you had to defend yourself? <laughs> right, when there's a business rival around. And we do, of course, uh, we do sparring in class, so that's wow. always a, a fun okay. experience. That's pretty wild, that's amazing. Um, it sounds mundane to go back to the other <laughs> stuff, I'm sorry. So let me, let me ask you, so from where you sit, you have this really unique view of the US economy, maybe the global economy. Where do you think things stand right now? There's a lot of talk about possible recession, and we can talk about IPOs, because I want to get into that a little bit, but just generally the economy. Well, I do think that we've been very resilient as an economy over the last decade. We've, been, we've come out of a period of great turmoil and tumult in, in our economy and in the global economy. And when you look at how all of the regions of the world have been able to recover from that, I think the US has done an extraordinarily good job of rebuilding the economy creating new opportunity, obviously making it so that we have a great employment environment um, and growing on a pretty consistent basis. I think that it, is, it has been many years of, of really accelerating or at least improving growth. I wouldn't say accelerating, but improving growth. And I, as I talk to um, other CEOs, I think we continue to see a very strong backbone to the US economy. But of course, we also are not alone. So we have to look at the rest of the world. And in Europe, you are starting to see some softness in their growth, some concerns they have. And their reliance on then Asia and China and the trade situation with China is certainly having, you can, you're starting to see that have more of an impact on the US economy, but it's having a big impact on the European economy. And we are all interconnected. So I'm not one to predict the future. I do think, though, that we have some areas where we have to continue to find ways to get past those trade issues and to try to drive that growth, you know, make sure that we can maintain the growth that we've been experiencing. All right, speaking of those trade issues, um, the administration has suggested that it may look to uh, delist Chinese companies or make it more difficult for Chinese companies to list on U.S. exchanges, including, of course, the NASDAQ. What's your take on that? Well, I think the good news is the administration actually backed off of that statement and basically said that that is not what they're considering doing. I think, though, that when we looked at you know, the, operate, the world that we operate in, first of all, um, we are seen as the land of opportunity, and we want to continue to be seen as the land of opportunity for companies from all over the world to come and, and get access to U.S. investors. So two things. One is we, have a, we are um, under a statutory obligation to be non-discriminatory in the way that we bring companies onto the U.S. market, and that includes non-discriminatory in terms of other countries, and that's something we take very seriously. But from a business perspective and from an economic perspective of the United States, we are not alone. I mean, there are other 
um, very capable markets out in the world. And so if, if, if uh, Chinese companies are no longer able to access the U.S. markets, you know, their opportunity would be to go to London or to go to Hong Kong. So they do have other avenues or to list in China. So we have to look at it as it's in our interest and in our economic interest to keep our markets open, to continue to be that land of opportunity, and to make sure that we maintain our role as the most resilient and most dynamic markets in the world. Interesting. So obviously there's been a lot of chatter about what's going on in the IPO markets lately, Adina, and people have been talking about the unicorns and the after performance, post-IPO performance for those big companies. And frankly, it hasn't been so great for a lot of them. Um, what is your take on where things stand right now with IPOs? Well, actually, if we look at the purely on the stats, we've had almost 150 IPOs just on NASDAQ this year alone. Uh, we've raised, I think, something like $27 billion so far this year on NASDAQ. And we have a 77% win rate of all the listings have come to NASDAQ versus our peer down the street. So we are extremely proud of the performance that we've had. And we're extremely proud of the companies that have chosen to come to NASDAQ. And I, I think there are definitely, every year, you have a mixed experience for IPOs. You know, whether or not the company is, um, is, has a, is races off the gate and has a huge run up, or whether or not they, they might have um, maybe a, not as smooth a path into the public markets, the fact of the matter is their success is going to be measured over time. Their success is not determined by the first day, the first month, the first quarter. Their success is going to be measured by are they building a scalable model that provides value to their customers while also providing value to shareholders? Are they able to demonstrate their vision through their execution over time. When they go on the road, they talk about what, what is the status of their, their company and their market today, where are they taking the company, what, how can you measure me over time? And the key is for them to be able to hit those marks and to show investors that they can, in fact, generate the growth and continue to perform the way that they have expressed they can. If they do that, they will create value for their shareholders. But you do have to recognize that it is a more dynamic and I would say somewhat um, volatile marketplace right now. So that first day, that first month, that first quarter may not go exactly as planned, but it's really a matter of how do they create value over time. And some people have said, you know, that we've really hit a top though. I mean, look what happened with WeWork, which was going to go public on your exchange and had to pull it. And people are saying that's a sign of a top, that some of these companies are just trying to be too aggressive given their capitalizations and the fact that they're not profitable, multi-class of stock, do you think we're sort of hitting a time in the cycle where you know, people are trying to maybe push things a little bit too far? Well, I, we don't usually talk about any specific names, but I would say that I think, first of all, every IPO has its own story, and every company has its own market that they're trying to navigate within. And every investor has to make an own individual decision on the companies that they choose to invest in. So we don't tend to like to look at one example and try to extrapolate. Just, I don't think that's the right, the right approach. But I would say that what investors are more focused on now, as these later stage companies have come to market, and that is a phenomenon that's somewhat new to the public markets, is that they're starting to really focus in on where does the scalability come from what is your path to profitability? How long is it going to take? Because what they're trying to figure out is, are you going to dilute me later? Right? So if we're going to raise capital, you're raising capital in the public markets to fund your growth and expansion, I'm here for you. I'm going to invest in you to do that. 
But I want to know that that is going to, in fact, create the growth and expansion, and that at the end of the day, it also creates a scalable model, so you're not going to come back at and ask me for it again, because that then dilutes my returns. And so that's, I think, much more of the focus of investors. And the companies that are able to articulate that and start to demonstrate that are the ones who've had a lot of success. Now, you and I were just talking, Adina, about this idea um, that companies have been staying private a lot longer than they have been previously. And this is the whole unicorn phenomenon. And you've seen this with the everything from Ubers to Airbnb and et cetera. Um, and that I was saying that, wow, that's all the venture capitalists are taking all the money out of the, the whole um, dynamic and they go public so late and all the money's been made in the private markets as opposed to the public markets. Is that the case? And if it is, should the government do something about that? <laughs> Well, I think that we, what we've been advocating for is the fact that we do believe that every investor and um, every citizen should have the opportunity to enjoy the growth of these of these um, these really innovative and interesting companies. And so the fact that the companies are choosing to stay longer, I mean, um, private longer, is cutting off opportunity for the broader base of investors. But it's not really a matter of the government putting more regulation on the private markets. It's a matter of the government releasing some of the regulation of the public markets. So when you think about when you go public, it is such a huge Rubicon to cross. It's not just that you're getting new investors, and yes, they have, an, they have a right to a very, very thorough understanding of your company and the disclosures to help them make an informed investment decision. The government has put layers and layers of disclosures on companies related to things that are not related to making an informed investment decision, politically oriented things like conflict mineral obligation, disclosure obligations and things that are not related to going public. Why is it that just because you have public, you suddenly have to disclose that? The other thing is that you have um, proxies that you put out. You have what we call gadfly investors who, I think it's something like 66% of all of the proxy um, matters that have been put on pro public proxies came from six investors. So, I mean, it's just, it's kind of this strange phenomenon that once you go public, you subject yourself to a, a level of um, regulatory scrutiny that, in our opinion, is not necessary. It's not helping the environment. You're subject to a lot of frivolous lawsuits and things like that, where the government can make a difference. They can make a difference by making it a more inviting environment. We have found a very receptive audience at the SEC for that. They have been trying to help us figure out how to manage through the changes in the proxy process and more oversight of the proxy advisory firms. Um, but, it is, but it's also a complicated political situation, so progress can be slow there. But we've been on this march for now for three years. And so what's, what's holding that back? So are there vested interests? In other words, um, there's a, a group of lawyers that contribute to the political process, et cetera. Is that sort of it? Yeah, there are a lot of vested interests here. Right. And, and they've found a That's way a to use... Answer. Yes. <laughs> they've found a way to use these elements of the public markets to, you know, uh, advance their their needs or advance their interests, and um, and so therefore they're not that interested in peeling them away. But if you're a public company and you have ready access to private capital, or very challenging access to public capital, I, I think your choice would be let me stay private longer. If we can make the public markets more inviting and less less concerning to them, and make it so it's a more I would say. Um, normal experience to go into public markets, then I think that you're going to find even more companies want to come out and they would come out earlier. Quick last question, Adina. Crypto, is that a friend or a foe of the NASDAQ? 
Um, neither. I, I think that we find it to be a really interesting innovation. I think that the technology that underpins it, the blockchain, is actually quite interesting, and we're integrating the blockchain into a lot of elements of our, our trading infrastructure for new markets that are launching. Um, but the crypto itself, I think it's a manifestation of that technology. The jury's out. It's a very, very young invention still. I think that you has had that classic product life cycle where, you know, big hype and then, well, what is it really used for? And let me just figure out where. So I think it's going through that period now of saying, is there a practical use for crypto, whether it's whether it's stable coin versus true, you know, Bitcoin, are there ways to be able to leverage this new technological innovation to create better ways to transfer money, to make it so that the global economy works faster and better? And I still think that there's real opportunity there. Okay. Adina Friedman, CEO of the NASDAQ, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.